2006 or thereabouts, I first heard of the black-robed regiment. At that time, I I thought they were talking about uh, judges. It's the only people that I knew that uh, wore black robes anymore. A few preachers. But then I discovered that what they were referring to were the preachers of the 18th century and the critical role that they played in our fight for liberty and in the birthing of the constitutional republic that we've enjoyed for over 200 years now. I uh, first did the presentation not thinking that I would ever do it, but just as a, hey, have you heard about these guys presentation? I believe my very first presentation was at a place called High Noon Club. If any of you remember the High Noon Club. I gave that first presentation just, you know, just in street clothes, just a little bit of information, and people came up to me and said, oh my gosh, Dan, people need to hear that story. And so one thing led to the next, and we began to get other invitations. And before I knew it, we were being asked to travel around and do the presentation. So we would throw the equipment in the back of the pickup, and off we would go. One day it occurred to me, just maybe this would be cooler if I did it in period costume. So I did. And then with the help of Peggy Burris, we enlarged upon the costuming. And then I thought, well, maybe it would be really cool if I had a vintage flintlock from that era. So we purchased our very first flintlock from the War of Independence. Then a uh, foundation heard us do the presentation down in in Durant, or if you're from there, Durant. And we we went to, uh, to Cisco, Texas and did the presentation again. And they called us and they said, we want to fund your ministry. We want to help you. And that's what made a lot of what we do today possible. In 2008, I ran into Paul Blair in Scottsdale, Arizona. We discovered that we were twins separated at birth, never met each other. I know, DeVito and Schwarzenegger, I get it. I get it. And God birthed a relationship there that has endured all of these years. He and I have fought this fight together for a long time. Unfortunately, the powers against us are great. The story that you're going to see today is not just history. If it were only that, I probably wouldn't go through the hardship of trying to do it. It's too much work, too much anguish. This is not just history. We're not going to just take a nostalgic, patriotic trip down memory lane today. We're going to talk about a time when the American church was the tip of the spear. When the American church not only believed the right things, but they stood up for, spoke out for, and in the end, fought for the right things. It's a difficult concept, to say the least, to think of preachers out on the battlefield leading the men from their churches and their communities fighting. But they believed that all was at stake. In my book, I quote some of these men, and they understood what would happen if they lost. The price that would be paid for liberty. So today, I, I with great 
prayer and humility and, and uh, passion, want to share with you the story of the church of the 18th century, a story that has unfortunately been lost and must be regained, or else I am convinced we will lose our liberties. Think of it like this. What we would call the evangelical church presided over the sunrise of liberty in North America. But if a modern evangelical church does not get its act together, we will also preside over the sunset of liberty in North America. It is that serious. We want you to enjoy this today, so kind of sit back like you're maybe at a little bit of a theater. It's more than just a show. Listen to the message. Pray for the equipment. We're always attacked spiritually. We really are. It almost sounds a little bit paranoid. We are constantly facing what we believe to be demonic attacks. They don't want this message heard. So with our heart fully in it, we are pleased to present bringing back the Black Robe Regiment. Dad, if you pull the lights, we'll start. Like the black-robed preachers of the 18th century, Dan is a pastor who boldly proclaims the principles of liberty from the pulpit. As a leader of the modern-day black-robed regiment, Dan serves as co-pastor with Paul Blager of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Convinced that pastors have a biblical mandate to be salt and light to their culture, Dan has also served two terms in the Oklahoma legislature, and was an Oklahoma gubernatorial candidate in 2018, all while remaining a full-time pastor. By retelling the story of the Black Regiment, Dan hopes to educate and mobilize today's preachers to engage in our culture war, just as the Patriot pastors did theirs in the 1700s. Dan and Percussion Films produced the 90-minute video bringing back the black-robed regiment, which provides a cinematic overview of the amazing story of the daring deeds of the original Patriot pastors who stood against British tyranny. The accompanying book by the same title provides the more thorough, heavily researched backdrop to the story, must reading for anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the role the 18th century church played in winning America's independence. Now sit back and prepare to travel back with us to a time when the American church stood up for what it believed in as we present Bringing Back the Black-Robed Regiment. To the pulpit we owe the moral force which won our independence. They prepared for the struggle and went into battle, not as soldiers of fortune, but with the word of God in their hearts and trusting in him. England sent her armies to compel submission, and the colonists appealed to heaven. John Wingate Thornton
Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, my fingers to fight. My goodness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, and my shield. Muskets leaning against the back wall speak as loudly as anything I might say this morning regarding our present crisis. Today we are called upon to either surrender our liberties, our religion, and our country, or to defend them at the point of the sword. There's no other choice. It's we who would gladly live peaceably among all men. We're now compelled to fight. It is therefore, my brethren, an indispensable duty that we owe to God and our country to rouse up and bestir ourselves and being animated with a noble zeal for the sacred cause of liberty, to defend our lives and our fortunes to the shedding of the last drop of blood. We must turn our plowshares into swords and our pruning hooks into spears and learn the art of self-defense against our enemies. Now there are some who pretend it's against their conscience to take up arms in defense of their country. But can any rational being suppose that God requires us to contradict the laws of self-defense which He God himself has written in our hearts to be careless and remiss or to neglect the cause of our country will expose us to the displeasure of Almighty God. To save our country from the hands of our oppressors ought to be dearer to us than our lives. And next to the eternal salvation of our souls, it is the thing of greatest importance. A duty so sacred, it cannot be dispensed with for the sake of our secular concerns. The cause of virtue and freedom is the cause of God upon earth. To indulge cowardice in such a cause, it argues a want of faith in God. And he that is so lost to humanity as to be willing to sacrifice his country for the sake of avarice or ambition has arrived at the highest stage of wickedness that human nature is capable of. And deserves a much worse name than I at present care to give him. But I think I may with propriety say that such a person has forfeited his right to human society. The tender affection 
we have for our wives and our children. Do now loudly call upon us to use our best endeavors to save our country. Either surrender liberty or defend it. It is your choice. a good number of years but the time has come for me to fight the good fight on a different battlefield to defend liberty both yours and mine it is the right thing to do and if I fall in the fight I hope to see you someday in a land where the shadow of death will never again fall upon us. And liberty is eternal. Men, who will go with me? That's what it was like to sit in a church pastored by one of our patriot pastors in my day. We, uh, we took our stand. We saw the war coming. We didn't want it. We did everything we could do to avoid it. But it came nonetheless. And when it did, we did our part. I've been asked to come here today to tell you our story. The story of the, what we were called, many things, but the Black Regiment. My name is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. I uh, 
came from a Lutheran family in Pennsylvania. My father, Henry, actually helped to found the Lutheran church there. I was a preacher myself. I ended up preaching in a little log church out on the uh, frontier of Virginia, a place called Woodstock, Virginia. Every Sunday, we pastors would climb into our pulpits, all of us wearing our black preaching robes. Now, I don't know what preachers look like in your day, but in my day, it really didn't matter whether you were Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran like me, even Anglican. We all wore our robes. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, then what in the world are you doing with a colonel's uniform on with a sword? We'll talk about that in a moment. So I would climb into my pulpit on Sundays looking like most preachers in my time. Something like this. And we wore our, uh, our collars, our preaching bands, as we called them. And every Sunday, we stood in front of our congregations looking something like this. And we would, uh, we would use this pulpit to preach truths that I understand in your day have long since been abandoned. Oh, now, we did preach the gospel, of course. But we preached the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God. And in God's Word, we found much that He had to say about justice. Much He had to say in condemnation of injustice and proper government and all of those things. And so we preached about those too. Now, taxation without representation was a huge issue in my day. We found the tea tax to be particularly egregious. It caused some of my friends to throw a little tea party down in the Boston Harbor, if you've heard anything about that. But you must understand that what we were really standing against was something more than taxation, even excessive taxation. We were standing against the principle that men can be governed against their wills and that their unalienable rights from God can be trodden over by tyrants. And so we stood against tyranny because we knew if tyranny was unchallenged, it would come to our churches. It would tell us what we could believe, what we could preach. We weren't going to have it. And so we regrettably, after many petitions, declared our independence and we fought. Now, like many preachers in my day, I didn't just pastor my congregation. I served in our local government. I served in the Virginia House of Burgesses before old King George shut her down. I served there with some fine Virginians. You may recognize a couple, a farmer by the name of Mr. George Washington, a tremendous Christian orator, a man named Patrick Henry. In fact, I was there at St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond in 1775 when Henry gave that incredibly rousing speech. Well, I remember it like it was like it was yesterday. Especially the part where he said, Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I don't know what course others may take, but as for me, you can give me liberty or you can give me death. A dagger motion to his chest drove the point home. I traveled back to my church in Woodstock, but I knew that God wanted more. And so I announced that my final sermon would be January the 21st, 1776. Well, the 
place was full, the word had gotten out, and I stood behind my pulpit and opened my Bible to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. You know, there's a time for all things, the Bible says. But my focus was on verse 8, where Solomon says, there is a time of war. There is a time, regrettably, for war. Well, I closed my Bible. I stepped down to my congregation. I said, ladies and gentlemen, Solomon was right. There's a time to preach. There's a time to pray. But there is also a time to fight. And that time has now come for me. Being accustomed to my being a fairly outspoken soldier in God's army, I'm not sure, though, that they were prepared for what they were about to see next. For you see, I... uh, I was going to reveal to them something that you saw a moment ago. So I had positioned a young boy outside my church. I told him when I opened the doors to that church, he's to begin to roll on that drum. And I did just that. He began to roll on that drum. And my having removed my clerical robe, I stood before my people wearing the officer's uniform you saw a while ago. And then I said to my men, Men, will you stand for liberty? And to my great amazement, the whole congregation stood and began to to sing, A mighty fortress is our God. And one by one, they began to sign the muster roll of the 8th Virginia. That was the regiment being raised that Mr. Washington and Mr. Henry had appointed me as colonel of. And I led those men from 1776 all the way to the end of the war, 1783. We fought at some of the greatest battles of that war. And I found in addition to being a pretty good preacher, I turned out to be a pretty fair commander in the field. This painting of General Washington and his staff, if you look to the far right, there I stand. Preacher John Muhlenberg, now Commander Muhlenberg. Oh, George Washington, a great friend. Peter Muhlenberg. He was brave on the battlefield, faithful in the cabinet, Honorable in all of his transactions, he was a sincere friend and an honest man. One of the greatest privileges I had in my life was to serve on that man's staff. Well, I told you that we were at most of the great battles of the war. We were. In fact, we were there at Yorktown. My men and I charged redoubt number 10 that actually forced ultimately the surrender of Cornwallis. A very famous painter in our day, Mr. John Trumbull, painted that surrender ceremony. I understand it hangs in your capital rotunda in Washington, D.C. today. If you'll notice in that painting to the far right there, some of us gents seated on horses. And if you really look closely, you can see me. Luther Preacher, now promoted to Major General Peter Muhlenberg. In fact, my home state of Pennsylvania chose me as one of their honorees, and a marble statue of me stands today in your statuary hall in your nation's capital. There I stand with my robe flowing back over behind me, sword sheathed, leading that 8th Virginia. You might say that I temporarily set aside my preaching robes for a set of riding spurs because we were indeed a cavalry unit. We fought all through the war. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that it was just a handful of us hotheads and we were out there wanting to cause trouble anyway, so we used the war as an excuse. No, it was preachers from every denomination. Let me share some of their stories with you. For instance, this man here, James Caldwell. 
James Caldwell was a Presbyterian preacher. I don't know what the Presbyterians are like in your time, but in my day, whew, they were the fiery preachers. We believe that old Caldwell said things just to make the British mad on purpose, like he was known to say, sometimes it is as righteous to fight as it is to pray. Well, if he intended to make the British mad, he succeeded because they put a bounty out on his head. So therefore, every Sunday, Caldwell would walk into his pulpit with a couple of loaded flintlock pistols hooked in his belt. And so as he got behind his pulpit like so, he'd pull out the pistols, lay them on the pulpit, preach his sermon, and then when he was finished, take his pistols, go to the door of the church and greet his congregation as they left. I've always said, a preacher in the pulpit with a couple of loaded pistols, when he takes an offering, I guarantee you. (laughs) Well, I want you to know that the British were actually very serious about their bounty on O'Caldwell. In fact, when they invaded Elizabethtown, New Jersey, one of the Redcoats shot his wife right in the chest, killed her in cold blood. He helped to do her funeral. And then he was off to Springfield, New Jersey, because his men were engaging the British there. But when he arrived, he learned that they had a great problem. You see, these muskets that we carried in our day were fine fighting weapons, but without wadding to keep the shot tight in the barrel, they were rendered, rendered useless pretty much. So what were they going to do? They couldn't fight. Well, Caldwell knew what to do. He jumped on his horse. He rode down to the First Presbyterian Church of Springfield, New Jersey, ran inside and gathered up as many hymnals as he could, filled with songs written by Isaac Watts, a very famous hymn writer in my day. In fact, he wrote the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I wonder if you still sing his old song. Well, what's a preacher going to do with these hymn books? Well, he rode back to his men. He began to throw them out to his men. He said, men, tear out the pages. Use the pages for wadding. So get this middle picture. Here's this Presbyterian preacher throwing hymn books out filled with Isaac Watts hymns to his men. They're tearing out those hymns, shoving them down the barrels, firing away at the redcoats. And all the while he's yelling, give them Watts, boys. Put Watts into them. That's the Presbyterian preacher, James Caldwell. Sad, though. Not only did the British kill his wife, but not long after that, a man that we believe they paid to assassinate him, caught him unarmed, and killed him. Again, in cold blood. You see, there was a great price paid for the liberties that you enjoy. And my generation, even generation of preachers, paid a very high price. Illustrated perfectly by the next story that I'll tell you about a young preacher. His name was Joab Trout. He was only 25. You see, when, when was this? It was in September of 77. It had to be the 10th. The 10th of September. Yeah, that's what it was. We were encamped on one side of Brandywine Creek. The Redcoats were on the other. We knew a fight was coming for sure. To buck up the courage of the boys, General Washington asked this young preacher if he'd preach a sermon. It came late in the day. We were gathered there. General Washington was there. General Anthony Wayne. I was there. Many of the boys were there. And this 25-year-old preacher preached a very powerful, quick, but powerful sermon. As the sun was setting, he closed in prayer and he said, God prosper the cause. Well, I got to tell you, we were ready to fight those redcoats right then. But the fighting would have to wait because the sun had set. But the very next day, September the 11th, 1777, we fought those redcoats at the Battle of Brandywine. We showed them we weren't giving up our liberties without a fight. Another sad thing. That young preacher that had preached that sermon the night before, he was right there with us. He was killed that day, fighting for his liberty, mine. And these many generations later, 
yours. Now, King George, he didn't like us one bit. In fact, he blamed the war on us preachers, especially the Presbyterian preachers. He was known to have said, well, this is nothing more than a Presbyterian rebellion. The son of the British Prime Minister, Horace Walpole, told Parliament, there's no use, there's no use in crying about it. Cousin America has eloped with the Presbyterian parson. So we thought it was kind of funny that they blamed it all on the Presbyterians. Although they were the hotheads. They were helping to lead the fight. But they hated us. And they blamed us for the fight. And you know, to be honest with you, we preachers were a big part of it. In fact, I'm pretty convinced had we not taken our stand, there might not have been a war at all. Now, some of you may be wondering, where did the title Black Regiment even come from? Well, it was actually a title introduced by a Tory. Now, that's what we called Americans who sided with the British, who didn't care much for them. A Tory by the name of Peter Oliver. He was the first to use Black Regiment, referring to our black robes that we preached in on Sundays. He intended it to be a term of criticism and derision, but I believe today it has become a title that any preacher, for that matter, even a Christian, should wear with great honor. Now, there never was a regiment of preachers. No, no, what it was was regiments led by preachers, groups of men fighting for our liberties. Now, right about now, some of you who have never heard my story are probably saying, well, why didn't I hear about this in school? Well, I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of your history you haven't been told. I hear that in your day, history is being censored and edited, and our story has all but disappeared. Let me illustrate it to you. On April the 18th, 1775, late into the night, a number of Massachusetts men are riding across the countryside yelling, the regulars are coming, the regulars are out. One of those men was named Revere, Paul Revere. Now you may know about Mr. Revere, but do you know this part of the story? When he arrived at Lexington late into the evening, he rode up to this very house. You say, what is so special about that house? Well, that's where the preacher in Lexington lived. His name was Jonas Clark. You see, Jonas Clark, with the help of a deacon named John Parker, had been training the men of his church and of the community how to fight together as soldiers. They were doing this all over New England. They were calling themselves Minute Men. Who forgot to tell you that the famous Lexington Minute Men were both trained and led by a preacher and a deacon? All but the plot thickens. The night that O. Revere rode up there, Preacher Clark had two special guests staying with him, Mr. Samuel Adams and Mr. John Hancock. In fact, John Hancock's grandfather had pastored that very church years before and had lived in that very house. Hancock actually wanted to go out and fight. They convinced him not to do it, but they did have a council of war. And they wanted to discuss, what do we do? The Redcoats are headed this way. Surely we won't have enough men to actually stand up against them. What must we do? And so they asked Preacher Clark, well, will the men fight? And he said, I trained them for this very hour. They will fight. And if need be, die too under the shadow of the house of God. So it was decided they would take a stand. Now, I don't believe that Preacher Clark nor Captain Parker, who happened to be a deacon, intended to actually shoot it out with the British. That's probably not their plan because that very next morning, a statue stands at that very spot today. April the 19th, 1775, Captain John Parker led some 77 Lexington men out to face, if you can believe it, some seven to 800 British Redcoats, outnumbered 10 to 1. It would have been suicide. So finally, Captain Parker and Preacher Clark believed that they had made their point, and so they told the Lexington men to disperse and go back to their homes. And if you can believe it, as they were walking away, someone discharged a pistol, the Redcoats, 
coats took it as a signal to open fire, and they began to fire initially into the backs of those Lexington men. And the battle of Lexington had begun, and our war of independence was on. By the time the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled, eight of those Lexington men had done exactly what their pastor had said they would do. They had died right there under the church house. Another ten had been wounded. How fitting is it that our war of independence actually began with Americans fighting redcoats in the churchyard led by the preacher and the deacon. That's exactly what happened. If you know your history, you know that later on that day they went over to Concord because that was their primary objective, to confiscate weapons. Well, they didn't find any of those in Concord, but I'll tell you what they did find. They found the Continental Militia standing on Barrett Hill. Would you believe it? There was another preacher there. He lived about 200 yards from the old North Bridge, which was right down at the bottom of Barrett Hill. His name was William Emerson. His grandson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, wrote the very famous Concord Hymn. Now, what is this preacher doing there with the militia? Well, he was there to encourage them. He said, men, we must stand our ground, and if we're going to die, let us die here. Well, eventually they marched down off of that hill, and they engaged those redcoats, and I'm happy to tell you, gave them a licking for sure. So much so that those British, well, they began marching back all the way back the 17 miles to Boston. Unfortunately, Minutemen groups all over the area had heard and they lined the road and they began to fight a running battle with those British redcoats. They almost annihilated them. If you go there today, I've heard that they've preserved a little portion of that road. It's called Battle Road. We were there that day. Right at the beginning. A few weeks later, there was another fight right outside of Boston. I believe you call it Bunker Hill. It was actually initially fought on Breed's Hill, ended up on Bunker Hill. You remember the painter that I mentioned a moment ago, Mr. Trumbull? Well, he painted a very important painting, caught a poignant moment in our battle when we were actually retreating back over Bunker Hill, retreating only because we had run out of ammunition. We had won the fight. Well, when you're out of ammunition... You have to surrender the ground. That's when General Warren was killed. A sad moment. But if you look at this painting, if you look into the upper left-hand corner, you'll notice that there is a gentleman who appears to be wearing preaching bands. Well, that's because he is. He's a pastor. That's Dr. Samuel McClintock. He was there from New Hampshire, fighting for his liberty. His family sacrificed three of their four sons in our effort for liberty. He wasn't the only preacher who was there. David Avery was there from Vermont and a whole slew of other preachers. We were front and center because we knew if we lost, we lost everything. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. Freedom to defend ourselves. It would be ruled and reigned by tyrants. But it wasn't just those preachers. During the struggle, many preachers actually died. This is Naphtali Daggett. He was the president of Yale. When the British invaded New Haven, Connecticut, he and a few boys from the school rode out and fired a few shots at the British, slowing their advance so the townsfolk could get out of town. They captured Daggett, even though he was a preacher and the president of Yale, and beat him so brutally, he never recovered from his injuries and died a few months later. Over and over, I could tell you this story. I could tell you about John Adams. John Adams, who was a preacher in New Hampshire, before the war ever got going, he and the men of his church gathered up all the ammunition. 
hid it so the British couldn't find it. I'm told that he hid the gunpowder under his pulpit. Just imagine that every Sunday he's standing there preaching these fiery sermons, standing on hundreds of powder, hundreds of pounds of gunpowder. What's a wonder he hadn't made a spark? Bone the church sky high. Would preachers in your day be that bold? We were. I can tell you about John Treadwell. He kept a loaded flintlock in his pulpit. One like this one. This flintlock was carried by Lieutenant William Perkins at the Battle of Bunker Hill. It's a 78 caliber. He kept this flintlock leaning in his pulpit. Just like this. And I'm told that every Sunday when he'd walk up to preach, he had his Bible under one arm, cartridge box under the other prepared to fight whatever fight came his way. I could tell you about Jonathan French when he heard about the Battle of Bunker Hill. He resigned his church, went home, got his flintlock and his medical bag, marched off and joined the Continental Army. Over and over and over I could tell you these stories. Stories of preachers who under normal circumstances would have not been involved in anything as terrible as war. But we were bold and we were not going to give up our liberties. I think best illustrated by this preacher, John Cleveland. This is obviously a drawing of Mr. Cleveland. He was a pastor in Ipswich, Massachusetts. King George had made the British General Thomas Gage the dictator of Massachusetts. And since they blamed the war on the preachers, he made it kind of tough on the churches. So Cleveland wanted to write a letter of protest to General Gage. But how's he going to do that? And then finally, he landed on the idea where he would just write the letter, publish it in the newspaper, and not only could General Gage read the letter, but all the other citizens could as well. Here's a little portion of that letter so you can get the flavor of what Pastor Cleveland had to say to the distinguished British general. General Gage, thou profane, wicked monster of falsehood. Your late infamous proclamation is as full of notorious lies as a toad or a rattlesnake of deadly poison. You are an abandoned wretch. Without speedy repentance, you will have an aggravated damnation in hell. I've often said, Preacher Cleveland, why don't you tell us what you really think, right? Do you realize that he could have been executed for that? But you see, in my day, there were some things that mattered more than popularity and applause. There were things like principle and truth. And that mattered to us. Mattered greatly. Well, it wasn't just Lutherans like me and Presbyterians like old Jonas, well, not just Jonas Clark, but uh, all these preachers, Caldwell and and many, many others. The Baptists were involved as well. This is Pastor Charles Thompson. When the British invaded Warren, Rhode Island, they burned his house and his church. Sad. They did this actually in lots of communities. So he joined the Continental Army. He was captured and placed on a prison ship. Now, in case you don't know what those are, they are just what they sound like. Ships turned into prisons. I tell you that the soldiers imprisoned in those places met a fate if you ask me, worse than death itself. Well, Moses Allen, a preacher, died on one of those ships. We paid a heavy price. Liberty is not free. It's costly. Joab Houghton was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hopewell, New Jersey. 
on April the 23rd, 1775, just four days after the battles of Lexington and Concord, Houghton stood on this stone right here. Used to be right in front of his house. Today it's the top of a memorial. This is his church here. He stood there to his congregation and he said, Men of New Jersey, the Redcoats are murdering our brethren in New England who follows me to Boston. I'm told that every man in Houghton's church went home, got their flintlocks, followed their pastor off to fight. This was happening all over the colonies. Houghton was actually there with me at Valley Forge. Many of us preachers were there with General Washington when our troops were freezing and starving to death when we didn't think it was ever going to stop snowing. The army was coming apart and we knew that it was critical for us to hold that army together as best that we could. So as the army continued to try to drill and prepare to fight that next spring, It was preachers like me and Houghton who helped to minister to General Washington and to his staff and to the soldiers to hold this army together. We did. And we lived to fight another day. And fight we did. In fact, I'm told that if you visit Valley Forge today, you can tour the reconstructed Muhlenberg Brigade barracks where my men and I spent that... That terribly cold winter in 1777 and 78. Well, we were fighters. We weren't just bold, we were fighters. That may sound sound a little strange to say that about preachers. But here's old Reverend Thomas Allen from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. As you can see, he was both the chaplain and the commander of the Berkshire Militia. To show you what a fighter he was... At the Battle of Bennington, Vermont on August the 16th, 1777, he led some of his men out of the battlefield wearing his preaching robe. Now, if you can imagine this, his men find their places in the formation, and then he walks on out into the ground between the two armies into the killing zone, jumps up onto a stump, surveys the enemy. His men thought that he had lost his mind. There he stands offering the British the opportunity to surrender before his men opened fire. Some of the Redcoats recognized him and said, well, there's old preacher Allen. Somebody ought to pop him. And they fired a volley of musket fire right at him with musket balls falling all around. Thankfully, they missed O'Allen. And he walked back to his brother Joseph and he said, Joe, you load and I'll shoot because you know I'm a better shot than you And they returned the favor and fought all day long at the Battle of Bennington, Vermont. When the battle was over, he helped to care for the wounded. But then toward the end of the week, he had to jump on his horse, ride some 30 miles back to his church so he could preach. When he got there, a member of his church, irate, said, Preacher, I need to talk to you. Well, Pastor Allen said, well, sure. What can, what can I do to help you? He said, well, I heard the other day over there at Bennington, you fought like a common soldier. And Preacher Allen said, well, I, I did. Every man had to do his duty. He said, but you're a preacher. Surely you didn't kill anybody, did you? Pastor Allen said, well, I don't know if I killed anybody. But I did, but I did notice behind a particular bush there was a frequent flash. And every time that flash occurred, one of our men fell. So I took steady aim and I fired at that bush. I don't know if I killed anybody, but I put out that flash. And that's Pastor Thomas Allen. Go 
those were the kinds of men who led our churches. Now, right about now, some of you are probably wondering, where did preachers like you guys come from? Well, you see, a few decades before our War of Independence, a great revival swept across the churches of New England. I believe your historians call it the First Great Awakening. Some of the greatest preachers in our history were preaching during those days. And a great revival birthed hundreds of new believers into the church. So when the time came for us to stand and fight for our liberties, we were ready. Many of us black robe men were just boys during that period of time when the Great Awakening first hit our shores. It was almost as if God was preparing us for the fight. Now, I want you to know that I was not the only preacher in the Muhlenberg family. I told you a while ago that my father, Henry, helped to to found the Lutheran Church in Pennsylvania. Well, I had other brothers, and one of my brothers was named Frederick. He pastored in New York City. He commented that what I was doing was wrong, and it was actually beneath the man of a cloth to get involved in politics and to get involved in war. So I wrote him a letter declaring to him that I was doing what I felt God wanted me to do and wouldn't he rather stand and fight than die like some dog? Well, I'd like to hope that my brother saw the light, but I think he rather felt the heat because not long after that, the British invaded New York City and when they did, they came in there burning and desecrating churches and Frederick barely got out of there alive with his family. Now what does fancy pants New York preacher brother Frederick have to say for himself? Well, he had a little bit of change of heart. And he immediately became a member of the Continental Congress. And then he became a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And my brother, who said you shouldn't get involved in politics and war, became the first Speaker of the House of the United States of America as one of the original signers of the Bill of Rights. Quite a turnaround, wouldn't you agree? The question is, what changed him? Was it me? Well, I'd hope so, but probably not. Was it the cause? Well, I think he cared about the cause. No, you see, what I think changed my brother is he got pinched. He got pinched so hard that it hurt. My question is to you and your church, your fellow Christians in your age, What's it going to take for you to stand up and speak out? How hard will you have to be pinched? Frederick almost waited too long. My friend, my friends, don't you do that. My generation of preachers and churchmen alike did our duty to stand for liberty. And you are free today partly because of our determined stand and at times desperate sacrifice. Can you do less for liberty than we did? Will you stand as we did? Friends, I personally have been in the ministry since I was 16. I preached my first sermon 
as a 16-year-old boy. I was full-time in the ministry by the time I was 22. I was a senior pastor of a church by the time I was 24. I turned 61 this past August. So I've been in the ministry practically all of my life. And yet I spent the majority of that time not knowing about men like Peter Muhlenberg. Men like Jonas Clark, James Caldwell. I didn't know about them. How is it that I could grow up in a patriotic home in America and not know about the great sacrifice that the church put forth for the gospel? And yet I didn't. I didn't know about preachers like William Smith, who was an Episcopal. He said this back in 1775. We know that our civil and religious rights are linked together in one indissoluble bond. And then he went on to say religion and liberty must either flourish or fall together in America. You see, they understood the connection between spiritual and what we often call secular. And they believed that they were really the same, at least for believers. We do everything as unto the Lord. This is why they preached election sermons. Did you know that they actually continued to preach election sermons into the 1830s? But can you imagine today a preacher, other than maybe Paul Blair or Dan Fisher, preaching an election sermon? But this was a regular part of their duties. The people expected it. They wanted to know what their spiritual leaders had to say about what the Bible says about governance and justice and injustice and Christian responsibility. If you can't hear it, church, where will you hear it? The answer is you won't. And of course, I've come to understand that our liberties, like a train, run down two rails. Civil liberty and religious liberty. And as long as those two rails are secure, well then the train of state can run right down the tracks with no problem. But you let one of those liberties be surrendered. You know what happens to the train. Runs off the tracks. Friends, that's what's happening in America today. We have given up much of our civil and unfortunately now losing our Religious liberty. Thinking that somehow they're separated when we know they are not. The Presbyterian preacher who was the president of what became Princeton University. He was also a member, by the way, of the Continental Congress that voted to declare our independence from Great Britain and penned the Declaration of Independence. Gave a speech right before they agreed to sign it, impassioned, encouraging the men to stand for what they knew was right. John Witherspoon was his name. He said, there's not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty was preserved entire. You see, they are so woven together that if you tear one away, you've destroyed the fabric. And yet somehow, the modern American church believes that we can stay within the walls of our churches, let Hell break loose outside, and we're not going to be affected. In fact, oddly enough, in a meeting here just a few months ago, a very prominent and wonderful man of God, a pastor, said, you know, Dan and Paul, what you're saying is right, but I just don't think it's going to affect our church. 
Well, I introduce him to the Equality Act. My friends, it will affect us. You cannot separate these. We all know that God created three institutions so we can have civil society, the home, the state, and the church. Each one is equally biblical and should be preached on and taught about from this pulpit. But in America, that's no longer the case. We've been telling preachers for over a hundred years, you can't preach politics in the pulpit. So in fear, they've pulled away. But during that period of time, that institution has risen up and now it's trying to exterminate the other two. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, through the Equality Act, if they can, will destroy the free preaching of the gospel in America. This is their target. This is what they're after. Now, historians before the war between North and South understood all of this. Look at this historian, Frank Moore, 1862. The preachers of the revolution did not hesitate to attack the great political and social evils of their day. Today, you cannot get preachers to touch them with a 10-mile-long pole, much less a 10-foot pole. Two years before Moore wrote that, listen to what John Wingate Thornton said. The fathers of the republic, notice, did not divorce politics and religion, but they denounced the separation as ungodly. What is the most common phrase we hear today? Separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. Actually taking a line out of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 and bastardizing it to teach the opposite of what Jefferson was trying to say. And yet there's nothing so ludicrous that if it's not repeated over and over and over, won't become embraced by the people, especially those who are ignorant, not stupid, ignorant, and are just unlearned. So what can we do? Well, first of all, we have to realize that it's not unchristian to talk about to preach about, to teach about civic duty, especially as a Christian. The late Adrian Rogers said it was God who created civil government. It would be inconceivable that God would create government and then tell his people to stay out of it. What happens when you take the salt and light out of any area of life? Well, it's easy. Decay and darkness. This is why Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. And government is one of God's institutions. So this is why the church in the 18th century really had no qualms about getting involved. They had been involved for a long time. But we've lost that today. The conscience of America has gone silent. What happens when it does? Well, you only have to look to 1930s Germany to see what happens. During that period of time when the Nazis were rising to power, you know what the church leaders were doing? They were trying to create alliances with the Nazis. Thinking that somehow if they could stay in the middle, everything would work out okay. Well, how did that work out? Not so good. Dark times. Oh, there were a few lights, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran preacher, oddly enough, but he paid with his life. You see, what happened in Germany, I suspect, is the church waited too long to speak up and had become too liberal to do so. Is that what we're going to do in America? Are we just going to continue to compromise and censor the truth 
and at the same time sit and wait for someone else to stand up and say something. And then we wait too long and we can't regain regain the ground. Samuel Adams, who led the Sons of Liberty in Boston, never claimed to be a prophet, but he said something once that's quite prophetic. He said, if ever a time should come that vain and aspiring men possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its most experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. Daniel Webster once said that what makes men good Christians also makes them good citizens. We ought to be the best citizens there are. Because we've been liberated by the blood of Jesus spiritually, we should love liberty more than anyone else. And the church should not be bringing up the caboose on the fight for liberty. We ought to be leading the way. But we aren't. This church is a rare oasis. There are pastors all over this country who won't even allow me to do this presentation in their churches. Do you know I have a hard enough time trying to get into Christian schools or into homeschool groups to share this story? Friends, it is time that this truth comes to life. In 2014, George Barna confirmed what we all suspected. He asked preachers, well, does the Bible speak out on all of these forbidden areas? And they said, oh, yes. He said, well, then are you going to preach on? And they said, oh, no. And he said, well, why not? And the preachers themselves gave a number of responses. But do you know what the top two reasons that kept rising to the top every time were? It'll hurt our attendance. And it'll hurt the size of our offerings. Notice Jesus didn't die for either one of those. That's what a hireling would say. Not a shepherd. You remember what Jesus said about the hireling? He sees the predator coming. He throws down the staff and leaves the sheep on their own. But the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Friends, if we do not speak up and get involved, we have no one to blame but ourselves. How hard will we have to be pinched? Well, I have one more story that I want to tell you before we wrap it up here today. So I want you, if you would, to put on your imaginary time-traveling cap, and I want you to go back with me to the 18th century to rural New Jersey. We're going to go to a place called the Forks of the Delaware. It's where a man by the name of John Rossbrug pastored. John Rossbrug lived in what we would call rural New Jersey today at a little place where the Delaware forked, thus the forks of the Delaware. He lived in this very house. Unfortunately, there is no painting that we know of of him, but we do have a portrait of his son, James. John Rossbrug was 63 when the war broke out. But rather than my telling you his story, why don't I let him tell you his story? Now, being a preacher, he would have not been like Muhlenberg wearing the colonel's uniform, regular military. He probably would not have been wearing at least a military tricorn hat. No, probably a parson's hat like this. I'd been preaching these principles from my pulpit for years. We could see what was coming on the horizon. 
The grip around the colony's throats by the British continued to tighten until it had almost strangled the life out of us. And we knew, we knew that we had to stand. We didn't want to. We were Englishmen by birth. But the king and the parliament wouldn't hear us. And so finally, war broke out after we declared our independence. I encouraged the men from my church to go and fight, but 63 is a little too old to go marching off to war, and so I stayed behind to watch over the families. That is, until the Battle of Long Island, New York. Because it was at that battle that General Washington and our army was almost wiped out. Had it not been for what we believe to be a miracle from God, they would have been. And I realized then that every able-bodied man had to do his duty. So I gathered my congregation together and I said, Men, we must rally to the aid of General Washington and to truth. And my men said, Preacher, we will go if you will lead us. And I said, It will be my distinct honor. At 63, I saddled up. We rode off to fight. We found General Washington's army and were involved in the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey. Now, what many people do not know is that about a week later, there was a second battle in Trenton when the Hessians and the British tried to retake Trenton. During that fight, unfortunately, I became separated from our men, and there was a creek dividing us, and I knew if I crossed over in the daylight, I would probably be captured, most likely killed. They hated us preachers. So what I decided to do was just to ride and do my best to evade being captured thinking that if I could just wait, get across the creek when they couldn't see me in the cover of darkness, why I could get away. Well, as the day went on, I had not had anything to drink or anything to eat, and so I I rode up to a tavern, and I uh, decided that I would uh, go inside and see if I could find something to eat, something to drink. And So as I rode up to the tavern, I, I, I felt securely tied off my horse, thinking, boy, if I lose him and I'm caught flat-footed, I'm a goner for sure. I went inside, thankfully found something to eat, something to drink, and I came outside, and can you believe it? My horse is gone. Now, not knowing whether it had been stolen or whether he just pulled free and wandered away, I began walking through the trees trying to find him, hoping that I could grab him because, boy... Flat-footed on the wrong side of the creek, on the British side, I'm in trouble. Well, I worked my way through a thicket of brush, but you will never believe what I found on the other side of that brush. I found a squad of Hessian soldiers commanded by a British officer. Hessians were German mercenaries that had been brought over to America to terrorize us, and it worked. They were fierce soldiers. There was nowhere to go. I couldn't run. And so I asked them if they would take me as their prisoner. They knew that I was a preacher. And they just laughed. I knew they meant me harm. And I asked them, I have a family and a church. They continued to laugh. And so I said, well, can, can I pray? Because I knew they were about to kill me. I wanted to prepare myself. I knelt there on the ground What do you pray when you're about to face a pretty brutal death? Well, I just started praying out loud, praying for my family, for my church, for this effort. God, you got to help us win this fight. 
Have you remembered the words of Jesus? You remember when Jesus on the cross asked the Father not to blame the soldiers that crucified Him? I prayed the same thing. Right where those Hessians could hear it, Lord, do not blame these soldiers for my death. Now you would think that a prayer like that might kind of soften those old cold, hard Hessian hearts. Didn't make a dent. When I stood up from my prayer, the British commander that was over those men said, take him. They jumped on me and they began to bayonet me to death. With such fury that when my body was found later, one of those bayonets had been broken off in my body by an enraged Hessian soldier. A black robe preacher by the name of George Duffield along with my wife and her brother took my body and gave it a Christian burial where I uh, await the resurrection in Trenton. You see, when we rode off to fight for liberty, we figured that some of us would be wounded. That, That much was clear. We also understood that probably some of us would die. But you know, you just try to kind of push that out of your mind. You don't want to, you don't want to think about that. But many of us did pay a very high price. My story is only known because one of the Hessians ran into Trenton bragging that he had just killed himself a rebel priest. Brandishing some of my personal belongings. We paid a very high price. Many of us preachers. Many of the men and women in our churches. I always ask, if we were willing to die for liberty, can you not stand up for it? My generation paid the price. Friends, this morning we've heard some amazing stories. We've heard the story of John Rosbrug. We've heard the story of Joab Trout. Remember, he's the preacher that was killed after preaching that sermon, Brandywine. James and Hannah Caldwell, Presbyterians, both killed in cold blood. Jonas Clark's men, right there in Lexington. Samuel McClintock's three sons. Charles Thompson, the Baptist preacher, thrown on a prison ship. Naphtali Daggett, the president of Yale. Now, these are just a few of the many who paid a very high price for our liberties. No one wants war. I certainly do not. But I definitely believe that it is high time, high time, that we bring back the spirit of the black-robed regiment. This is why my wife and I are so committed to traveling the country when we get the opportunity to share this story because we believe the church must hear this. She and I are very grateful to you as a church body because you believe in this message enough that not only do you allow us to be here and to do it with Paul's belief and cooperation, but many of you have given to help support this ministry. It's a story that must be told, friends, because I told you at the beginning, if the church does not re-engage, we're going to get the privilege of presiding over the sunset of liberty in America. God forbid it. You say, well, Dan, I'm just one person. I'm not a 
I'm not a preacher. I'm not a I'm not an author. I'm not an orator. What could I possibly do? Oh, there's a lot you could do. First of all, start speaking up. Stop apologizing for what you believe when you're at work or when you're at school. Engage with a church like this one that will stand and preach the truth and stop supporting churches that won't. But you could run for office. Some of you could run for school board. Some of you could run for city council. We've all seen the incredible authority that mayors and city councils can take upon themselves, an authority that they really don't have. We need godly men and women on city councils. You ought to run for mayor. You say, well, I'm just not cut out for that. I can't speak publicly. I had a man in my church at Trinity a number of years ago came to me after a message like this one. I rolled the window down in my pickup. We were leaving. And he came to me with the tears in his eyes. And he said, Dan, I feel like God wants me to run for city council. Do you think a man like me could do that? And I began to weep. And I looked at Richard and I said, Richard... It's a man like you that we need. He ran for city council. As far as I know, he'd never been elected to any kind of public office. One served faithfully, was one of the only members of that council that said no when that city wanted to give in to perversion. Friend, you can do it. Some of you ought to run for county office. Some of you ought to run for the state house. I'm telling you, if I can serve in the legislature, anybody can. But you just really may not be someone who's called to run for office. Then you have the job of helping find those who are and then supporting them enough to get them elected. My friends, we better start doing something because the left is quite busy. And they're more than willing to fill the vacuum that we create. So here's what we're going to do to end this service. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to bow your heads. And I'm going to ask you to ask God, Lord, what is it that I could do? I'm just one. But do you have something for me to do? Do you remember when Isaiah, he wrote it down in chapter 6 of his book, said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who will go? Who will we send? Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. That voice is going out again today. No matter how God chooses to use you, my friends, we must be willing. Now, let me also be quick to add, if you're not certain that you know Christ, that if you died today, that you would go to heaven, then the greatest need of your life is that you give your life to Christ. Now, typically on a Sunday, our invitations are a little different than what we're going to do today. But there are still going to be some counselors who are going to be waiting over here to the far sides of our auditorium. And if when we dismiss here in just a moment, you would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Or maybe you are a Christian and you've just gotten way out of God's will. Go to them. Maybe you feel like you ought to join this church. Go to them. Let them know. But right now, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me. And we're going to see if we can hear the voice of the Lord calling us.
There's a call for men to be in a land where all are free. There is hope for liberty if we go. as we close this day today we thank you for the privilege that we have had to gather here thank you Lord for this marvelous history and those who were willing to blaze the trail for us now Lord I pray that we will pick up the banner and follow their example Lord there are men and women here that you could use in miraculous and marvelous ways if they would just step up. There are probably men in this auditorium, some of them may be young men, who need to take this message and learn how to share it and help me take this message around the world. Lord, some people in this room maybe are not called to run for office, but they are called to get engaged and to help those who are. To write letters to their state representatives and state senators and U.S. senators and U.S. representatives and get engaged to get involved. Some of us, Lord, just need to get out of a dead church and come and join a church like this one that will engage. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray that today we will hear your voice saying, Who will go? Who can we send? And that many of us will say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. And Father, I know when we do, You will make us more than adequate. Even though we are very inadequate, You've told us we can do all things through Christ who is our strength. So Lord, in the words of Joab Trout from September the 10th, 1777, I pray God prosper the cause. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for allowing me to share this marvelous story with you. God bless you as we stand together for liberty. You and I together, with the Lord's help, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.